just that importance of constantly learning and, and listening to other people, I think, is, is something that has stuck to me. And I think it's also just about, I think you hear Steve Jobs talk about this, people being constantly curious and, you know, educating yourself is a great way to, I guess, satisfy the curiosity. Welcome back to Infinity Inc, where I talk to some of the world's brightest founders and thinkers about their bold visions for the future and the thinking that went into them, all in an easily digestible half an hour. We'll be focusing on ideas and companies that can have a transformative impact on the world, including everything from new school systems to seasteading. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Laurie Kyo. Laurie's had a fascinating career, starting out as a lecturer before moving into consulting. After a decade of climbing the corporate ladder in both Accenture and Deloitte, Laurie was turned on to the potential of blockchain by a friend over dinner in Hong Kong. Laurie's interest was piqued, and he consumed everything on the technology he got his hands on. He reflects, one question was answered, but led to another five. And then, really, it just took off from there. In the following years, Laurie has founded Deloitte's EMEA Blockchain Lab, before moving on to Consensus, where he held roles as Managing Director and Global Co-Head of Partnerships. His career proof of Joseph Lubin's assertion that, for those who understand the profound implications of blockchain technology, there is no going back. In our wide-ranging conversation, Laurie gives a first principles explanation of what blockchain technology actually is, which is worth the price of admission alone and also describes the regret minimization framework he used when deciding to leave the warm stable of consulting and take the plunge into pursuing a role at Consensus. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Laurie, uh, so glad to have you here. Big fan of your work on LinkedIn. and um, I'm one of your, your many adoring fans, so uh, thanks so much for coming on. Well, well, thank you very much. Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> That's what I've learned. I thought we might start with your career. And just from a high level, you were in uh, strategy and operations and, and consulting for a good while. Um, and then in what seems like you know a total twist of a career path in 2013, you opened up a, a blockchain lab. What was it about that you saw about blockchain at that time that like fascinated you enough that you wanted to, to go deeper and, and explore it more? Sure, and thank you for the opportunity for, for the chat uh, today. So what would I say? I, I was actually having a couple of drinks with a friend of mine. This is, I don't know how many years ago. But yeah, like you said, about six years ago now who lived in Hong Kong. So I was over there on holidays. I hadn't been to Hong Kong before. Fantastic place if, if you haven't had the opportunity to go or your listeners as well. And um, highly recommend it. But I was basically just kind of asking a little bit about what Bitcoin was and, and how it worked. And he was definitely on page two and, and I was on page one of, of the book, so to speak. And I got really interested in it. And I just had a bunch of questions and ended up, we ended up speaking for hours about it. Um, much to the pain of the people that we were with. And then I was lucky enough to have, a, this was Hong Kong was the first stop of a, of a holiday I was taking in the next place. I was sitting on a beach in Thailand and I was able to 
just think of questions and then go and research what those questions might be and see where people had written answers. So I started watching lots of stuff online. There was a bunch of videos on YouTube. There were a bunch of articles by BBC and other outlets. And one question was answered, but led to another five. And then really, I just got kind of took off from there. I then came back to Ireland. I was working for, for Deloitte Consulting at the time here in Ireland. And I came back to uh, my boss, my, my partner, and I just said, look, I think there's something in this blockchain stuff. The reason why I got interested in it was just that it, it seems like a foundational level technology under which a lot of information would be stored that corporates and governments around the world would use as a foundation source of information. So who did what and when? And having that transparency as to that information, I just thought would be invaluable. And how information would be collected would change many industries and sectors. I spent my career working in financial services. And so I specifically focused on thinking on, you know, how would, how would information be captured in terms of transactions? Would that lead to more streamlined audits? Um, so I thought the implications for, I guess, for Deloitte and for other consulting companies would be, and audit firms would be significant. So then what happened, basically, I'll, I'll speed up a little bit now. After that, we sponsored a blockchain hackathon in Dublin, which was the world's largest blockchain hackathon at the time. I wrote an article about what blockchain is. It was the first piece of, first piece of kind of published material that Deloitte had covered on blockchain globally. Ended up doing a really interesting piece of work with Bank of Ireland around regulatory reporting and how blockchain could be used as a means to capture information and then share information with multiple sources such as the regulator or the stock exchange to streamline regulatory reporting and um, more specifically MIFID 2 and then after that that was that was a great piece of work we applied to become um, the Deloitte's Europe Middle East and Africa blockchain lab so this is where we received funding from the Deloitte family and fortunate enough that and we won the funding and that was really the beginning of the of, of Deloitte's blockchain journey and a big part of the, I guess, blockchain ecosystem in Ireland. There's a quote on the consensus website from Joseph Lubin um, that for those who understand the profound implications of blockchain technology, there's no turning back and certainly seemed to be the case for you. Would you mind maybe for people who haven't kind of had that first taste or, or delved into it much, maybe laying out from, from first principles, um, like what is blockchain and, and why is it important? Sure. So look, for me, I think blockchain has four key characteristics and I'll quickly run through, through those. So number one, um, the first thing that I'd say is that what's done on a blockchain um, or when you interact with a blockchain, it's there or it's there forever. So it's very hard to delete information. It's not, I won't say it's impossible, but it's extremely difficult. So if you were to interact or record something on a blockchain that, you know what, a good was made in a certain way, or that, excuse me, you made a transaction, as the case may be, that information is there. And as, as far as we can see it so far, um, will be there for quite some time and can't be edited, amended, or altered. So that's point one. Point two are these things called smart contracts. And smart contracts are self-executing contracts when certain criteria are met. If um, this event happens, trigger this payment. And the applications of that are, are, are infinite in many ways. So let's say for travel insurance, if your flight is delayed at the moment um, and you've bought travel insurance, you can go online. For, um, sorry, you, after four hours, you're, you're entitled to make a claim. But you have to go online, fill out a form, and then you get some of your money back several weeks later, which is you've had a bad customer experience, you've paid for a product, 
and then you have to do homework and then you get some of your money back several weeks later. So it's not a fantastic experience and there's lots of friction in there. And what smart contracts can do is they can look to automate that experience so that one second past the four hour window, the money automatically goes to your bank account, which is a great customer experience. And therefore, would I be interested in actually, you know, in products like that? Or if I do purchase a product from a company that provides products like that, I may then get interested in what other products are they uh, selling? And that may be of interest to me. And also, would I be willing to spend more money on a product like that? And that was, that's really kind of one simple application of smart contracts. But ultimately, if this event happens, trigger this payment. And that can go for, for many, many applications. So a huge amount of excitement there. A third thing is around decentralization. And decentralization really means that if a bunch of companies are working together, no one single company has the data, stores the data, and owns the data. In fact, in fact, really what it means is if there are, let's say, five companies, each company has a direct copy or instance of that data set. And if company one experiences a hack or some kind of IT um, shutdown, it can refer, when it comes back online, to any one of the four others um, for a copy of their information. So it makes it, I guess it has a thing, a thing called automated redundancy. There's, there's really kind of support systems in place automatically, and many of them. And the Bank of England has been very interested in the technology for that specific reason for quite some time. And Mark Carney, the previous governor of the Bank of England, specifically. And the last one is cryptography. So cryptography um, really is what makes it work and what makes it secure. Um, so we mentioned that it's hard to edit or mend or alter. Um, but to kind of get into, uh, the, to kind of segue into why it's called blockchain, ultimately what, what blockchain all boils down to is that there is a block, a genesis block, the first block at the start, and transactions are agreed, effectively are captured and agreed into that first block. And they have to be approved by one entity, five entities, as the case may be, or by computer programs figuring out puzzles. But all those transactions are stored in the first block. And then when that block becomes full or it reaches its capacity, then a second block is created. And the second block is linked to the first block. And so on we go to block 5,422. Now, if I want to go in and change a transaction in block 5,420, really, I can't just go in, make that change, and then everything, you know, everything just ticks on from there. That's not the way blockchain works because block 5,420 is linked to 5,419 and also 5,421. Actually, what I need to do is I need to go back and change uh, all the way and take control all the way back to the start, to that very first block, which requires a huge amount of computer power or compute power and therefore requires a huge amount of electricity, especially when you're using blockchains, such as the Bitcoin blockchain or Ethereum, some of the more, I guess, more established blockchains. And it requires state level electricity to do that. And so that's one of the reasons, one of the fundamental reasons why the underlying technology, the blockchain has not been um, hacked or tampered with over the last, I guess, 10 years or more. So yeah. it's a, that's ultimately where the name comes, a chain of blocks that can store data and that's very hard to amend, edit or alter that has some unique features or functionality that other technologies don't have. I think it's really important to say as well that blockchain is, is definitely not the answer to everything to which I think, look, I was guilty even saying in the past myself. So I think it does some things and quite specific things um, very well, but it's, there's a bunch of stuff that it doesn't do. Thanks for that very clear um 
explanation, the inner lecturer coming out there. I think that'll be very helpful for a lot of people because it's very easy to, to get lost in the weeds. So after setting up your, your blockchain lab, pretty pretty shortly afterwards, you, you moved on to Consensus. And speaking a bit about what you did at Consensus, some of the projects worked on. Yeah, sure. And yeah, I guess this was a, a big decision for me in my life. I was offered a partnership in Deloitte um, in Hong Kong. And, you know, sometimes like when you're waiting for a bus in Dublin, there's none for ages and then to come along at once. And I didn't really know what to do. Do I go to Hong Kong? Do I join the partnership there or this company, this, this blockchain startup that approached me said they were really interested in building a big uh, capability here in Ireland and it was an opportunity for me to to help build a business from scratch so from one person to build a team to represent I guess to deliver for clients out of Dublin at a Europe Middle East and Africa basis and potentially globally and I used Jeff Bezos regret minimization framework which is basically you picture yourself at 80 and you think back in your life and you think of what are the, the decisions that you'd regret most or regret more and that was a big uh, helping factor for me to, to make the decision as well. I was getting lots of advice from friends and family and I rolled the dice and I thought I may never get a chance to start to start the business in my home city, in my home country. And so I joined Consensus on April 3rd, 2018 and I was employee number one and then um, luckily a bunch of people joined the business, a bunch of fantastic people. And we set up Consensus in Ireland and the way Consensus used to work was that it was a, it acted quite like a consulting company where we, we worked on projects for clients to help them build proofs of concepts and pilots and even some production projects. And since then, the company has started focusing a lot more on building products. So selling products on a licensed basis in the same way that Salesforce would. Well, look, I built, uh, built the team up to a, a peak to 43 people. We, in six months, we built a production uh, system, so a, a working blockchain system for trade finance with 10 global banks and Shell, which is a really, really proud moment. And at one point, there were 70 people working on that project. And to do it in six months was a significant achievement. And then I got asked as well to be the, the co-global lead for partnerships. And um, so as the company change to focus more on product my job became to really work with the consulting partners primarily so to work with the likes of Accenture and PwC and KPMG and EY and Deloitte to explain to them that we're no longer really competitors and that we have products where we think that we'd be great partners so it was to explain to them who consensus was who they are now as the case may be and then how consensus and those companies could work together where consensus would sell their products one of them being blockchain in a box, another one being a token issuance platform, and then the integration work and business analysis style work would go to the consulting party. So I did that and it was a fantastic and exciting journey and um, also built the office in, in Ring's End, which is, which is still there. And then I guess through all sorts of different reasons and COVID definitely being a factor in that, I left the business back in May, and so I had a fantastic two years with Consensus and wished them very well. You you mentioned that, you know there are certainly things blockchain can't do, and what can blockchain do that you're most excited about? Look, I I think that there's a bunch of stuff out there already, and I'll cover some of them. But I think there's also probably a bunch of use cases that are still yet to come out, and that's either because people haven't thought of them yet, or because I think they're being worked on very quietly by different institutions around the world. 
But the first thing that I would say is there was a, a piece of work done actually by Consensus and Louis Vuitton where, or LVMH, where LVMH are using blockchain technology in order to track and trace their goods. So specifically handbags. Um, so where and how handbags are made. But it's to solve the problem around how do we demonstrate that the product that you're about to buy in Brown Thomas, let's say cost 5,000 or 10,000 euro, right, for a very expensive handbag, is actually a legitimate LVMH, excuse me, handbag. And so they have, with Microsoft, built a platform called Aura, which demonstrates this. And ultimately what it is, is on the bag, there's a QR code and you have to take out your phone and you scan the QR code. And then it prompts you to enter the serial number of the bag into the uh, web uh, app, or sorry, into the, I guess, website page that opens up. And then basically you type punch in the code and then it says whether it's, uh, it's a real handbag or not. What I learned was the problem that they're trying to solve is that a challenge that retailers face, especially high-end retailers, is that a bag will be for sale in, let's say, in Brown Thomas here in Ireland, and then somebody buys it, and then what they'll do is um, some individuals will then take the bag, will then replace it with a replica, a very good replica, come back into the shop, ask for their money back, so they give back the replica, they've kept the original and they get money back, which means obviously the, the shop is in, you know, is down twice um, and it's a big problem. But that's kind of part A of the story. Part B of the story, which I actually I think is really exciting, is that what LVMH have done is they've realized that they've built a platform, which I don't think solves this 100%, by the way. I think there's all sorts of other checks and balances that need to be put in place. But I do think that the fact that they are now looking at um, licensing their technology um, to other players, I think is really interesting. So there's a fashion house who's famous for making bags. It's kind of moving more into the tech space, which I think is really exciting and really interesting. So there's kind of, that's one example. I think the, I think the big trend uh, around either crypto or blockchain is that is the area of digital currencies and central bank digital currencies. And I think that for me is a really exciting area. And I think we're going to see a lot more on this. And it's kind of funny. We're, we're, we're going through different cycles. Obviously, blockchain started with, with Bitcoin you know, over 10 years ago. There was a lot of talk about it and a lot of people doubted it. Then it became all about blockchain and enterprise blockchain applications. And I think some of that excitement has gone away and, and, and justly so. And now what we're seeing is actually a, another turn of the wheel where cryptocurrencies, crypto assets are now back in fashion again. And we're seeing a lot of interest from large financial services players in that space, whether it be Morgan Stanley, whether it be Goldman Sachs, who has Goldman Sachs as appointed a head of digital assets, a guy called Stephen McDermott based in London. We've seen the head of digital assets for JP Morgan in New York, a guy called Ali Harris has now moved to Goldman. So we're seeing a lot of big institutions starting to make moves in the digital asset space. And I don't know exactly what they're doing, but it's gonna be really interesting to see what they come out with. For me, my personal view is that the reason behind all this is that JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley, these guys, Goldman Sachs, it's their clients are asking, how do I get access to cryptocurrencies? How do I do it securely? Can you help me? Can you help hold the cryptocurrencies for me? Can you help me trade these quickly? And so I think what we're seeing is that, and this is, the, this is really a positive sign for me, is that it's actually consumer or customer-led. The financial services institutions are responding by providing services because that's what customers want. So it's not just a whole pile of utter spec 
speculation. It's actually the institutions are creating solutions based on product demand and need. And I think that's a, a really exciting thing. And that's a, a very, I guess, a, a traditional approach to solving problems. And that's, I think, a, a very exciting thing. Yeah, um, I'd be with you there. I think it's, it's, we're probably only uh, beginning. Do you think we've had our kind of killer app or are we still kind of waiting for that? I think it's a really good question. And I think, I think that the, for me, and this is kind of goes back to that cycle point, initially it was cryptocurrencies and then it was a whole host of other things. Now I think it's gone back to cryptocurrencies and crypto assets. And as I get a little older, I think the killer app for blockchain technology that's kind of striking me at the moment is, is this area of cryptocurrencies, crypto assets, and it's, it's the initial use case. And in time, and a lot of people have written about this recently, in time it may be found that blockchain actually does one thing and one thing fantastically well, and that is to create cryptocurrencies. And that's it. Mm. Uh, so I've become, um, I won't say cynical, but I've definitely become more pensive in relation to all the different applications that are out there and how uniquely do, do they solve problems versus using other technologies. Um, and what blockchain really has done, people have been looking for the killer app Perhaps it's been right under all of our noses and myself included all along. And that is by the creation of cryptocurrencies. So whether that's central bank digital currencies or whether it is indeed other crypto assets. But I actually think, yeah, my, my head and heart are kind of heading back towards that. So you were, you were early on, on blockchain as we've kind of discussed. Um, but something else that probably a lot of people don't know is you were the first person in Ireland to use LinkedIn Live. And you've been also lecturing on, on technology trends for, for 13 years. So I was wondering, are there any kind of emerging technology trends that you've been noticing as, as you have in the past um, that, you're, that you're excited about now? Well, on the LinkedIn Live piece, a big thank you to, to Ross Kelly from LinkedIn to helping me achieve that. I think that was my persistent annoyance for months and months and months that helped get that and i'm sure ross is very happy that episode in his life is over but look i think that's a it's a great feature that linkedin has provided and it's great to see more and more people have access to it now um that's a great broadcasting tool i think for for lots of folks on the on the lecturing front and kind of i guess on the, the tech trends front what do I see? I guess certainly during the last academic year, it was interesting to see the big shift in ideas from kind of what people were thinking of in January and then COVID hit and then it was really problem solving around COVID. How do we, how do we use technologies to, to try and I guess speed up test times to make testing more accurate, to make information, I guess, available to as many people as possible. Um, as fast as possible. So I think that was a, a really interesting one. I guess as, as part of the, the courses that I teach, I, I unsurprisingly, look, I cover blockchain technology, I cover robotic process automation, and I think robotic process automation is a technology which is, which is highly powerful. So the likes of companies, I guess, UiPath would be very famous in that area. Blue Prism would be another. And I think robotic process automation ultimately is a, a computer programming replicating manual tasks that humans do using software. So whether that be opening an email, opening a PDF and punching information to another system, really a robot can do that. Uh, by robot, I mean software, not an actual robot. And I think there's a lot more opportunities for a technology like that to be, I guess, to be rolled out because I think there's, 
you know, I think proofs of value, they're called, can be, you know, shown or demonstrated in two weeks, in four weeks, in six weeks, depending on the, on the problem you're solving. So I think there's lots of opportunity for companies like that to use robotic process automation. Um, so that's kind of, that's definitely one area. Look, I, I, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning is, and it's probably more machine learning than artificial intelligence, but I think it's wildly fascinating. And I think we are at early stages in terms of that technology. Um, and there's been Shane Lynn of Edge Tier, who's a, another fantastic individual. And he's a, for me, he's one of the, if not the best person that I've heard speak about machine learning and artificial intelligence, certainly in Ireland. Um, and he explains it really well is that, you know, machine learning is really, you know, machines learning patterns. So if I ask this question, you know, there are, there are certain answers that a machine will spit back out. And that's based on kind of creating rules and advanced rulemaking. While artificial intelligence is the next rung of the ladder. And that is where machines really start to kind of, I guess, demonstrate some, some tiny semblance of, I guess, independent thought. But we're, we're miles away from that. And um, I think Shane would agree on it. So I think, you know, when I think of machine learning, I think of things like chatbots where, you know, how can we help you today? You type in, I need to get, I forgot my password. And then a bunch of options come up. And then all of that is really rules based. Um, and based on the amount of times that the machine will get asked certain questions, it obviously can then record those questions and, and then I guess put forward potential answers to those things. So I think, and um, Intercom obviously has fantastic chatbots. So you can see great examples of that. And I'm sure we've all come across them, whether we're dealing with Sky or Virgin as well. Um, I, look, I, I'm also fascinated um, by, by the platform economy. So we're seeing the likes of this fantastic work by Devin Hughes in terms of Buy Me. We look at, I'm a big admirer of LinkedIn and the way I guess their business has evolved and continues to evolve. And I guess hard to talk about technology and not talk about Amazon in terms of what they've done. So I think it's fascinating to see how platforms are created. And the big tip I'd give there would be, there's a guy, a researcher from Stanford called Jim Collins, who's written Good to Great and How the Mighty Fall. And he explains Amazon in terms of this thing called a flywheel. Um, so if anyone's not familiar with Amazon's flywheel and Jim Collins, it's, it's definitely worth checking out some of his material. And then what would I say, I guess, lastly, I'm probably most of all, I'm fascinated by innovation. So how do companies innovate? Um, uh, why do they innovate? How have they done it in the past? Was it successful? Was it not? And I think it's a tricky art. And I think there's some really strong innovators in Ireland. And there's some really fantastic companies in Ireland do this very well. I think there's a guy called Carla Hearn who leads Fexco's innovation work down in Kilorglan. Um, I think Carl is one of the best innovation people I've, I've ever heard speak, to be honest. His, the way he kind of looks at innovation is it's to, it's to remove, the, remove the noise and remove the ambiguity around innovation. And that, you know what, There's, there can be clear methodologies around it, which makes it a step-by-step process. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll always invent the next iPhone, so to speak, but that there, it removes the randomness of it all. So... I guess, what's the bottom line for me on all that? I am excited by a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's great to hear such optimism uh, for the future, which is, is kind of rare these days. 
Um, but it's funny you should mention Devin and Carl in, in the same sentence because we had Devin into TCU to talk a while back and um, he mentioned that Carl being one of his mentors and when Devin was formulating the idea for Buy Me, Carl said, listen, go out and, and, and get the customer feedback, get the data and kind of an example of what you, um, the kind of process that, that you said he, he preaches. So that's uh, interesting to hear. On a more personal note, you mentioned the, the flywheel effect of Amazon. Um, and I was wondering, does, does Lori Kyo have, have a flywheel? <laughs> Do I? Um, I? I probably have a, a squeaking flywheel, perhaps a rusting flywheel, but be more accurate. But uh, look, I, I, there's probably things that I'm always doing um, that I think I are helping, I guess, keep a, a flywheel moving, certainly at some pace, although it might be glacial. And I think a big cornerstone for me on that is to be constantly learning. So constant education. It's something I try to do, I guess, to try and do at least one course of some sort every year. And it doesn't matter how small it is, as long as you do something once a year. Now, I, and I know that, you know, it doesn't have to always be in a very expensive course. Um, it can be free stuff online. It can be more moderately cost of things like that so i know there's a lot of stuff that, that's out there that's that's expensive and inaccessible to to people at certain ages and, and for other reasons but i think that for me is definitely one of the things that helps me understand what else is going on in in different markets in, dif- in different sectors and helps me keep up with trends so to give you an example i am I'm just finishing out a postgrad in high performance sales in Smurfit at the moment, which John O'Gorman leads, which honestly has been one of the best courses I actually may have ever done. It has been really, really insightful. And more specifically, why do I think it's a it, it's a great course? I guess at my stage in, in, in my life and in my career, what I'm looking for are, are great tools and templates that I can put into use immediately. There were a number of things that I was able to take and put into use immediately with clients, which I, that's exactly what I wanted out of the course. And for that reason, I think the, the course has been really, really beneficial for me. And what else? During the summer, I did a, I became Scrum Master, which I thought was really interesting, right? I'd uh, worked as part, you know, as agile methodology. I became a Scrum Master. And I think that's something that is, I think it was maybe 800 euro. I know it's just still quite a lot of money, but it's, it's not the same financial commitment as a, as a postgrad or as a master's. And I think that definitely, I, I took away learnings from that. And now I actually, I start my PhD next in a couple of weeks time. May I ask what the PhD is in? Yeah, it's in innovation and entrepreneurship. And it is more, more specifically, it's looking at why in the face of disruption and change do some companies succeed so they take the opportunity and and so to speak take the bull by the horns and they create they pivot they create new business models and they flourish versus why do some companies when they know change is either happening has occurred or is about to occur why do they struggle and fail to change and adapt and this is something that's happened for you know over the last hundred years so the way i'm looking at it is is to do it through a historical study so going back to the kind of uh, early 20th century and looking over the last whatever 120 years where and how has this happened before because it's cyclical and there's been lots of change in society and in business over the last 120 years 
but why does this keep on happening again? So we look at, I guess, um, we look at the British Empire, right? They were they were at the center of the universe when it came to when it came to industry, at the, at the beginning of the twentieth century, and we look at why, I guess, why were they so successful, and what happened for them to lose their, I guess, their their grip on on industry globally. So I'm really interested in that, but then all the way through to looking at, and these are our companies, you know, that I'm sure you've, you've studied many times, Will, which is looking at the likes of Blockbuster, looking at Nokia, looking at Netflix, looking at Amazon. So it doesn't always have to be looking at the companies where companies fail, but I am very interested in, it's in why companies that were once so incredibly powerful and successful, it's not as if the executive suddenly, uh, the executive teams suddenly woke up one morning and forgot how to do their job or, you know, became stupid. That's not the case. So what happened, you know, that really led to a company, you know, kind of sliding and, and disappearing versus other companies that, you know what, no matter what happens, they seem to succeed. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Something that Elon Musk turned me on to about the rise and fall of civilizations. So even on, on a broader societal level, you have these great civilizations who actually forget by the end of, of their time, say it was the Romans, you know, make the aqueducts, all those things, and they eventually let it slip and, and the empire falls. So you could draw a comparison there. Um, and definitely, and, and Jim, Jim's, uh, Jim Collins' book, The How the Mighty Fall, the number one reason that he states on studying lots and lots and lots of companies and why they succeeded and, or otherwise, the number one reason that he, his research has shown is that companies that were successful that fall away is because they took their eye off the ball with with what they were designed to do at the start yeah and this is a thing where companies struggle with innovating is that you know there's they need to consistently focus on bau and their customer and core customer base but that doesn't mean that they can't innovate and and the flip side of that is if they do innovate they can't forget their core business and this is the challenge that businesses have they're they're trying to they're trying to do I guess, multiple things at once, and it can be a challenge. So you mentioned Jim Collins there. You tangentially touched on a bit of Clayton Christensen's uh, disruption theory. Are there any kind of other uh, intellectual heroes of yours that, that you really look up to, maybe in management or, or even in life? Yeah, look, uh, there, there are many. There are many. I certainly think that, I guess, books that have you know, changed the way I think are probably the, are a great example of that. I think Stephen... Covey is actually, I was told how to pronounce it, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is a fantastic book for, uh, for somebody to have on their shelf and kind of, you know, read. And it was one of those books that I read and actually just started again. Um, when I finished the last page, it went back to the first page. So that for me, I think it's a fantastic book um, for business and, and in life. I think Malcolm Gladwell's stuff, I'm a big fan of a lot of his writings. There's a lot of great insights there. Um, another fantastic author, uh, is a guy called Robert Cialdini, um, and he wrote a book called Social Influence. So it's understanding, I guess it's understanding sales and marketing and kind of social phenomena, one being, let's say, reciprocity, the power of reciprocity. So you've given me a great opportunity to, to do this chat with you today. You know, now perhaps I need, you know, to, to return that favor to you sometime. Pleasure. Is great ex- Pleasure <laughs> but there's great examples where actually... Yeah. Ireland, where I think it was uh, a long time ago, the, the the Choctaw Nation, so Native Americans gave money to Ireland during the famine, and then earlier this year, and that was that's a long time ago, 
um, earlier this year, Ireland actually returned some of the funding or gave a donation back to the Choctaw Nation um, due to that act of kindness that took place you know, over 100 years ago. So that's the power of reciprocity. And we see it, obviously, in Japanese culture and gift giving. And um, I think is Chialdini covers it in a masterful way. So I think that's another fabulous example. And that's a great book. And then there's another book probably on the sales front. And it's actually one of my recent favorites, definitely, as uh, a guy called Frank Cespedes. And, he, and that's aligning strategy in sales. And the book is really what it says on the tin. It is talking about strategy. It's actually one of the best books that I've read about strategy. It breaks strategy down into very understandable terms um, and stuff that I used immediately. And then it talks about how, where you fit sales with strategy. A large part of the majority of the workforce that's out there today in Ireland and Europe and the world is dealing with sales. And a lot of people have never done a module on it, have never done a course on it, have never been trained on sales. And Cespedes's book is excellent at walking you through his framework. And I think that is a, is a, great, is a great tool. And I mentioned John O'Gorman from UCD, who has a book called Pit Stop for Growth. And he has another fantastic framework for sales as well. So there, there's a bunch of stuff that I refer to a lot in my life. The last two I'll have to, to add to the reading list. The first two I also uh, have read and, and would recommend highly. I think Influence in particular, Warren Buffett and uh, Charlie Munger, they liked it so much they gave Cialdini uh, shares in, in Berkshire Hathaway. Wow, okay. Uh, so that's, that's one of their favorites. A final kind of a personal question. I, I recently discovered we, we both went to Gonzaga College and something that, that the Jesuits tried to, tried to create is men of competence, conscience, uh, courage and compassion. And uh, uh, to me, it seems like you, you embody all four. But uh, I was wondering, how did that, the kind of Jesuit ethos, has it guided your career or, or how do you feel it kind of rubbed off on you? Well, look, great to meet a fellow green machiner. And in terms of those attributes, geez, I, I probably need to work on all of them. Uh, I may have great intentions in all of them, but yeah, definitely need to spend more time. For me, I think what the Jesuits did, and maybe I think this, this bit has stuck in me, is that they, they place education really at the forefront of what they do. And I think that's something that is... It definitely has stuck with me in some way, shape, or form. Maybe all the all the classes that we attended, well, there's there's things that sunk in with me, and just that importance of constantly learning and and listening to other people. I think is is something that has stuck to me, and I think it's also just about you know I think you hear Steve Jobs talk about this: people being constantly curious, and you know, educating yourself is a great way to I guess satisfy the curiosity. I think there's, yeah, there's, there's lots of other things that a Jesuit education taught me, but yeah, that, that passion for education is definitely one. And hopefully in some small way, when I'm teaching that comes across to the, to the people that I'm working with in the classroom. Well, yeah, I feel it's even come across in this interview. So you're doing a good job. And um, to, to wrap up, I thought we might hop into a quick fire round. I'm nervous. <laughs> uh, so I was wondering if I gave, give you, give you a, a word or a topic and you can say if you're kind of long or, or short or otherwise, uh, that thing, and maybe a little line or two as to, as to why. Um, so first up, you mentioned you've been working remotely uh, down the West and I was wondering your kind of hot take on remote work. 
Quick fire and hot take. I think we're gonna, the genie's out of the bottle. That we're, there's no going back in terms of the, the openness that companies and entities have shown around remote work. So I think it is, it's a thing that's here and I think it's a thing that's here to stay. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. And um, Bitcoin? Bitcoin, um, I'm long on Bitcoin. I think it's got a future. I was talking to somebody last week about this and you know what people are asking me, what do I think about Bitcoin? Bitcoin's more than 10 years old. And I think in 10 years time, I'll probably still be asked that question and I'll be, you know, have no hair and I'll be saying that, yeah, it's now 20 years old and I'm still asked that question. So yeah. I'm long Bitcoin. Finally, Apple. Apple. I, I also, I guess, log on Apple. I'm a big Apple user. Um, I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how they continue to innovate. We see that you know their blockbuster product was the iPhone, and they've had success since then. But what will their next blockbuster product be? It's I'm fascinated to see. But look, they're a massively successful company, and they're worth what is it two trillion now? So yeah. they're in a pretty healthy position. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what, what their next product is. And I read a Twitter thread that was predicting that they might kind of try to solve the human longevity problem uh, as, you know, iPhone penetration reaches um, further and further then. And the only way to sell more iPhones would be to get people to live longer. It'd be interesting to see what they branch out into next and if they'll become one of those, you know, how one of those mighty companies that, that fall or, or will they survive? So we'll have to see. Uh, it's been a pleasure anyway, uh, Laurie, and um, thanks so much for coming on. I had a great chat. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Infinity Inc., where we talk to the brightest founders and builders building a future that we actually want to live in. And make sure to check back in um, next weekend for another episode. The best. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.